This morning we'll be reading four passages for our Advent reading. I'll be reading two of those passages from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophetic book, and the Psalm.
Let's pray. Father, this morning we, we lift up our missionaries, Kurt and Bonnie. Father, we love, we love them. We love their ministry. Father, we ask this morning that you would uh, pour out your grace upon their work. Father, I pray that there would be much fruit among uh, the missionaries they serve in Asia. And Father, I pray that, uh, that many would come to know you as a result of their encouraging and their supporting and counseling uh, missionaries in that region. And Father, we do pray that, uh, that you would bring uh, additional counselors, the right team members to, uh, to their ministry, Father, so that it can expand and that many more missionaries uh, and evangelists could be supported. Father, closer to home, we, we lift up our brothers and sisters over at Northeast Baptist Church in Portland, Father, and we pray for uh, Pastor Marks. Father, um, we ask that your word would go forth from their pulpit this morning, Father, that, that the good news of the glory of your son Jesus would be preached from that pulpit, and Father, that uh, the hearts of our brothers and sisters would be good soil. Father, I pray the same for Living Water Church this morning. Father, I ask for spiritual renewal. Father, I pray that you would awaken us to the glorious truths of the coming King. Father, as we think about Advent and we have these reflections, Father, we want our hearts to be gripped, gripped with the significance of the incarnation and gripped with the weight and the gravity of your son's return. Father, do that work in our hearts. And Father, this morning, I pray that you would give me boldness. Father, I pray that the words I speak would be good and true. So Father, guard me from error. And Father, I do pray that you would awaken within us a fiery passion, that we would be passionate disciples. That's what we want. So do that work in our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm curious, how many here celebrate Advent in one way or another? It could be reading scriptures as a family or reading Advent devotionals or lighting candles or keeping an Advent calendar of one kind or another. How about a raise of hands? How many here celebrate Advent? Oh, maybe about 20%. Maybe I'm preaching to the wrong group this morning. Well, this Tuesday is the 30th of November, and that marks the annual feast of St. Andrew, fisherman, brother of the Apostle Peter, and patron saint of Scotland. And if you're thinking, what an odd bit of trivia, um, there's a reason behind that fact. That means that today is the closest Sunday to St. Andrew's Day, which makes it the first Sunday of Advent. And I put it that way, instead of saying that today is the fourth Sunday before Christmas, not to be overly precise, but to stress the fact that Advent 
is a part of the traditional church calendar. In fact, Advent marks the beginning of the church calendar. The word itself, the word Advent, comes from the Latin Adventus, and it means the coming or the arrival. And in the church, it primarily refers to two events, one past and one future. The first Advent or the coming was the arrival of the Messiah, the promised King, the birth of Jesus. And of course, we celebrate the first Advent on Christmas Day, though we probably don't have the day or even the season of the year right. The second Advent is the second coming, the return of Christ, which Jesus promised and for which we as believers eagerly await. So that's clear enough. Two Advents. The history of the celebration, though, is a bit muddy. You see, there's no record of the church observing Advent until at least the 5th century. So it's very unlikely that the early church observed anything like it. After the 5th century, as Advent gained some traction as a season of holy days, it became a time of preparation for the church. It was a somber season of repentance, fasting, and anticipation of what was to come. So for four weeks, in the Eastern Church it would be six weeks, Christians fasted, prayed, and prepared themselves for the celebration of the first Advent as they eagerly awaited the second Advent, the return of King Jesus, who they knew was going to come to judge the living and the dead. That was a serious event in the church. This fasting and praying and repenting may have been lost or at least minimized by some of our modern traditions like Advent calendars and Advent wreaths, which probably came to us from Germany in the 19th century. I think you would agree that four weeks of repentance, prayer, and going without food is quite a contrast from the 24 days of opening little Advent calendar doors looking for chocolates. <laughs> Even what we preach on Advent shows this stark contrast with how the event used to be celebrated. We've done it here at Living Water Church. For Advent messages, typically cover these four topics. You'll recognize them. Hope, peace, love, and joy. And some even say that that's what the four candles represent around your Advent wreath. Now, believe me, I'm not trying to ruin your family tradition this morning. Those are beautiful topics. But get this, the traditional topics for the four Sundays of Advent used to be death, judgment, heaven, and hell. They were known by the church as the four last things, the most important things that happen to men and women as they leave and after they leave this world. Advent was a time of preparation for death, judgment, heaven, and hell, because the king was returning. So yes, our newer traditions lack some of that gravity, but what they do get right is this. They help create a sense of expectancy and excitement that climaxes in the celebration of the first Advent. 
What five-year-old doesn't feel that sense of expectancy when dad lights the second and then the third and then the fourth candle, knowing that Christmas Day is just about here? Well, this morning and for the following three Sundays leading up to the celebration of the birth of Christ, we're going to reflect on Advent. We're not going to light candles or anything like that. We're just going to open the Word of God as we always do, and we're going to ask God to show us something of the glory of the Advent of our King. And maybe next year we'll do a series on death, judgment, hell, and heaven. So Advent reflection number one will be on Psalm 24. So open your Bible if you have it with you to the 24th Psalm. If you're like me, you'll find it helpful to see the whole passage on a single page rather than the one or two verses that we can fit on the screen. Psalm 24. This psalm is a hymn to the King of Glory. The occasion of this hymn is not clear. It may have been composed as a reflection on the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem during the time of David. We don't know. But what we do know is that this poem paints a beautiful picture of Yahweh as the king in a procession of worshipers or pilgrims winding their way up the mountain of the Lord, the holy hill to the gates of Zion. The psalm has three related sections. In the ESV, you'll see that they've broken it up in paragraphs, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and verses 7 through 10. As we walk through the song together this morning, I want us to answer one question, and it's the question posed by the author at the end of this song. Who is this king? Look closely at verses 1 and 2. Everything that follows in this psalm is built on the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Our song begins by establishing the authority of the king. The earth is his, and all that the earth produces is his. Everything that fills the earth belongs to this king. From the needle-toothed anglerfish 5,000 feet beneath the Gulf of Mexico to the microalgae buried in the ice caps atop Mount Everest, everything belongs to this king. He is the supreme Lord over all things. And as is the way with Hebrew poetry, the psalmist repeats that truth and then expands it to show us yet another facet. The world belongs to this king. And all those who dwell in the world belong to this king. Not only is he Lord of all things, he is Lord of all people. They belong to Him. No one in this world exists outside the dominion of this King. 
to the man. We are all subjects of this king. And verse 2 tells us why. The connecting word is for. The earth and everything in it and everyone on it belongs to or is under the dominion of this king for, because he made it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Therefore, it is his, all of it, no particle, no person accepted. That language, he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, is a poetic reference to the third day of creation. When God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. So who is this king? Our first answer from verses 1 and 2 is this. This king is the absolute ruler of the world. He is the sovereign to whom all of creation must answer. Everything is his by right of his being its maker. Again, those two verses are foundational. As the creator king, the Lord of all, he determines who may join his procession. He decides who is, to be, who is fit to be in his presence and who may worship him. And that's what he does in verses 3 through 6. You see, Jerusalem especially the Temple Mount, is a symbol of the special presence of God among men. The king now declares the moral qualifications of those who may ascend this holy hill of the Lord. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question. And our answer comes in the form of two positives and two negatives in a single sentence. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is important. Not every Israelite may climb this mountain or enter the presence of this king. But there is a generation of seekers who may. And we know four things about this generation, four aspects of their moral character. And each of these are rightfully demanded by this king. First, his worshipers, worshipers of this king, must have clean hands. This generation of seekers are marked by outward holiness. They do what is holy. They speak what is holy. They are engaged in holy acts of kindness to one another. They honor one another. They even honor their president. Imagine. Foul words are far from the lips of this holy generation of seekers. What comes off their tongues builds up their brothers and is always fit for the occasion. 
Their holy words give grace to those who hear. Just imagine how different Facebook would look if his worshipers had clean hands, if they were known for their outward holiness, holy acts, and holy speech. Well, if you know your Bible, you know that everything I just said about outward holiness came directly from Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 2. And there are a hundred other passages just like them. So before you accuse me of preaching legalism, read Paul and read Peter and then listen to my next point. Spurgeon said, it is vain to chatter incessantly about your inward experience unless your daily life is free from impurity, dishonesty, violence, and oppression. Those who draw near to God must have clean hands. What monarch would have his servants with filthy hands to wait at his table? They who were unclean could not enter the Lord's holy house, and that was made with human hands. Much less shall the morally defiled be allowed to enter spiritual fellowship with a holy God. If our hands are now unclean, let us wash them in Jesus' precious blood. And let us pray to God, lifting up holy and pure hands. But clean hands will not suffice unless they are connected with a pure heart. Number two, the worshipers of this king must have pure hearts. We know this. If our outward holiness does not spring from a holy heart. Even the best of our actions are corrupt to the core. To merely reform our external behavior without a radical change of our heart is, in the words of King Jesus, to clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside to be full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones in all uncleanness. True religion, said Spurgeon, is heart work. Do you want to enter the presence of this holy king? Do you want to see his face? Then know this. That blessedness, that happiness is reserved for the pure in heart. They shall see God, Matthew 5. The outward holiness of this generation of seekers springs from hearts that are pure. Number three, worshipers of this king must not be idolaters. Brothers and sisters, we have an idol problem. Every one of us, we carve them ourselves. Our nature, said John Calvin, is a perpetual factory of idols. And idol worshipers are not allowed in the holy presence of this king. That's what it means to lift up your soul to what is false. It is to worship a false God. It is to seek your fulfillment, the happiness of your heart, the satisfaction of your soul 
in anything other than the face of the God of Jacob. Idols are called false because they cannot deliver what they promise. Every idol promises you happiness. What they deliver at best are momentary and fleeting pleasures that leave its worshipers ultimately unsatisfied and longing for something that will. A better job, a bigger paycheck. Oh yes, the God of wealth will make me happier. You all know the answer to this question. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more, that's right. Just a little bit more. And that wisdom came from John D. Rockefeller, the richest man alive at the time. Our idolatry, of course, we don't call it that. Our idolatry is no more sophisticated than the ancient worship of the stick and stone gods of Canaan, Greece, and Rome. Those gods promised the same lies, health, wealth, fertility, power, prosperity. The list of promises is endless, but the lies are the same. And we fall for them hook, line, and sinker. In his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller used the categories of deep idols and surface idols to describe this sickness of our hearts. Deep idols are power, approval, comfort, and control. And each of our deep idols generate within us a different set of fears and hopes. So you want help identifying your idols? Ask yourself this, what do I fear most about this situation? What do I fear most about this time in which I live? Or where is my hope? Where have I placed my hope. Our surface idols are things like money, husband, wife, or children. They are the avenues or the channels through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. And of course, it seeks fulfillment in vain because they are false. Again, verses 1 and 2 are foundational. As the creator, this king makes the rules, and he demands the undivided worship of his subjects. I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This king is a husband who will allow no other man into his chamber. And if you find that language offensive, you need to read James chapter 3, because that's the exact analogy the apostle uses. This king rightfully demands exclusive worship from his subjects. No man can serve two masters, said Jesus, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Worshippers of this king, this generation of seekers, know what it means to sing with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing, nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73. Spurgeon put it bluntly. If we suck our consolation from the breasts of the world, we prove ourselves to be its home-born children. Does the world satisfy thee? Then thou hast thy reward and thy portion in this life. Make much of it, for you shalt know no other joy. Worshippers of this king must not be idolaters. Number four, worshipers of this king must not be liars. It should come as no surprise that a worshiper of this king, the God of truth, those worshipers are good to their word. This worshiper speaks only what is true. These worshipers love truth and they hate falsehood. It is, after all, number nine of the Ten Commandments. Commenting on this verse, Charles Spurgeon said, Every liar is a child of the devil and will be sent home to his father. He got that from John 8 and from Revelation 21. A false declaration, a fraudulent statement, a cooked account, a slander, a lie... All of these may suit the assembly of the ungodly, but are detested among true saints. How could they have fellowship with the God of truth if they did not hate every false way? And he got that from Psalm 119. Worshippers of this king must not be liars. So what is the moral character rightly demanded of this generation of seekers by their creator king. They must have clean hearts. They must have clean hands. They must have pure hearts. They must not be idolaters. And they must not be liars. Now let me say a quick word about verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The moral character demanded of us as worshipers of this king is not without reward. This is precisely what makes idolatry so wicked. Idols are cheap imitations that promise the kind of happiness and fulfillment that can only be found or better received, that's what the verse says, received in seeking the face of the God of Jacob. The blessing of the king and his righteousness is the only thing that can satisfy your souls. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. So who is this king of glory? Well, from verses 1 and 2, we see that he is the creator king, absolute ruler of all things. And from verses 3 through 6, we see that this king is the one who rightfully demands moral perfection of his worshipers. Let's take the final four verses as one unit. The question the psalmist asks here is the same as ours. Who is this king? He states the question twice 
using identical words. The answers in the second half of verse 8 and the second half of verse 10 are nearly identical, but the second answer seems to expand on the first. This is poetry. The psalmist now personifies the gates of Jerusalem. That is, he gives human traits to the city gates, like ears to hear and heads to lift up for the sight at the sight of the coming king. The scene is dramatic. As the king and his procession of worshipers or pilgrims approach the gates of the city, the singers cry out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Then peering over the battlement atop the city gates, another group of singers cries out, Who is this king of glory? The answer comes from below. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then they sing it again from below. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in from above. Who is this king of glory? The answer comes from the singers below. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. What a majestic picture of the arrival of this king. Our question was, who is this king? What we now know is that he is the king of glory. And the glory of this king is the sum of all of his perfections. It is the sum of all of his goodness shining forth in blazing brilliance and beauty. It is the radiating splendor of the excellencies of the very nature of this king. That is his glory. So who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, verse 8. He is Yahweh. This king is the timeless, independent, never-changing, all-sufficient creator of the universe. He is the I am. The Scottish Baptist minister, Alexander McLaren, is so helpful here. We say, I am that which I have become. I am that which I have been made. I am that which I've inherited. I am that which circumstances and example and training have shaped me to be. God says, I am that I am. This name is significant, not only because it proclaims absolute, independent, underived, timeless being, but because it's the covenant name and speaks of the God who has come into fellowship with men. Emmanuel, God with us. This king of glory is Yahweh, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The picture is of God as a warrior. It is an image we find throughout the scriptures, and we can't spend a lot of time on it, but let me give one example. 
is from the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. He sings, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the, Yahweh is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He is the true warrior God. He fought for his people and subdued the nations under them in order that his name might spread and his glory might be known in the earth. Well, who is this king of glory? The answer of the worshipers resound. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then they expand the answer in their second response in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? Answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts is a divine name used more than 280 times in the Old Testament. And what it signals is Yahweh's command over the armies of Israel and over the armies of heaven. Other kings have but one army under their command, and they might be hailed as, a, as mighty in battle. But this king, he is the Lord of hosts. He commands not merely the armies of Israel, but the armies of heaven itself. Legions of heavenly beings stand ready to make war at his command. Who is this king of glory? Three answers so far. This king is the creator and absolute ruler of all things. This king is the king who rightfully demands moral perfections of his subjects. And this king is the king of glory, a mighty warrior, victorious in battle, and the king of all armies, even the hosts of heaven. Well, if you've stayed with me this far through 10 verses, you might be wondering... What in the world does all of that have to do with Advent? And I'm glad you asked, because that's my fourth and final point. When the writer composed this psalm, and Israel gathered to sing it in the assembly, they saw but shadows of the things to come. But from our vantage point, at this stage in redemptive history, we know that the substance of those shadows belongs to Christ. Who is this king of glory? He is the creator king. Do you recognize him in Psalm 24? By him, that is by the hand of King Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, Colossians 1. Do you recognize who this king is? Who is this king of glory? He is the child prince of whom Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the first advent. He said that the government would be upon this king's shoulders and that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this king's government and of peace, there would be no end. Who is this king of glory? 
He is the one like the Son of Man seen in a vision by the prophet Daniel more than 500 years before his birth in this little town of Bethlehem. In the vision, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to this king was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this king of glory? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this king of glory? He is the absolute ruler of all things. All authority belongs to this king. Do you recognize him in Psalm 24? All authority, said King Jesus, in heaven and on earth has been given me. Who is this king of glory? He is the king of Psalm 24 who rightfully demands moral perfection of his subjects. You therefore must be perfect, commanded Jesus, as your heavenly father is perfect. He is the mighty king mocked at his execution with a sign above him that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And yet in this death, this mighty king disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are evil powers. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Colossians 2. Yes, he is the mighty king who destroyed the very one who had the power of death. He shared in flesh and blood. He himself likewise took part of the same things. That's the first advent, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, Hebrews 2. Who is this king of glory? Or maybe we should call him what Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 2, the Lord of glory. He is a mighty warrior, victorious in battle, and commander of heavenly armies. Then I saw heaven opened. This is John's vision as he was in exile on the island of Patmos. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. There's no question. This is King Jesus and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king who died for us while we were still sinners. He is the king through whom we may have peace with God. You see, our standing before this king is not based on how well we clean our hands, how well we purify our hearts, 
Whether or not we avoid idols or refrain from lying, our standing before this great king is by faith alone in the finished work of King Jesus alone on the cross. Therefore, he is the king upon whose name we must call if we would be saved. Who is this king of glory? He is the king who now ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And while his small band of followers were gazing into heaven, and he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He is the king who will return. Who is this king of glory? He is the king now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is this king of glory? He is the king who will return to judge the living and the dead. That is why Advent should be a time of preparation for us. Are you ready? Are you ready for the return of this king? And that's my fourth and final point. Who is this king of glory? He's King Jesus, the Lord of hosts the king of glory. He is the king that we celebrate and prepare for at Advent. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let all the earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts for this great celebration of the birth of your son, Father, we don't, we don't want to miss the gravity of it. Father, these truths are deep and beautiful. So, Father, we want to have hearts that are pure because we want to be a part of that generation who seek you in faith. Father, please do that work in my heart and do that work in the hearts of my brothers and sisters this morning. And Father, as we continue our time of worship, Father, I pray that you would be honored and King Jesus be glorified. Amen.